M&K Talk YA now presents Smoke in the Sun, Part 2, by Renee Adia. Welcome back to MNK Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Katie Bradford. And this is our podcast where we talk all about young adult fiction. And this week we finished Smoke in the Sun, which is the second book, or the final book, well, both things are true, in Renee Adia's duology. Which was called Flame in the Mist. Yes. And this series was based off of the Chinese ballad of Mulan, but is set in a second world fantasy that resembles feudal Japan. And big news, I actually rewatched Mulan this weekend. Oh, you did? Yeah. I kind of have been in the mood to do that. <laughs> I was watching it on our way back to Pittsburgh because we drove to Pittsburgh this past weekend, and I couldn't figure out how to not have my phone play the movie through the car speakers because like, when you hook <laughs> your phone up to your car, it like everything in your phone plays in the car speakers. <laughs> and of course, it was working, and then it stopped working right at the best song of Mulan, which is I'll Make a Man Out of You. And, like, all of a sudden, our car just starts playing super loud, like, <laughs> be a man. And Chad was like, what are you listening to? <laughs> and then we couldn't get it to turn off. I love it and wish I had been a fly on the wall. <laughs> no, I was, I was laughing so hard I was crying. <laughs> uh, not only is that a good song, but I feel like that's just, like, a funny part for it to start. Yes. To go so big. <laughs> It was it was big. It was really big. <laughs> but what a great movie. I totally forgot what a great movie it is. So how did seeing the movie and relating to the... Did you see a lot more tie-ins or were you actually surprised by more differences? You know, because I feel like I haven't seen it in so long that I'm like, you know, I, don't, I forget a lot of the details. <laughs> I mean, it's so different. Yeah. It's just like... <laughs> I mean, the basic concept is there where she dresses up like a man. To... That's really the only part. Even That's the reasons it. why she does it are like completely different. Yeah. But but yeah. And I guess she saves the empire in both cases. Yeah. And especially since like in this book, the emperor and his sons are kind of the bad guys. And in Mulan, of course, it's like that's not the case. So yeah, it's yeah, it was very different. I'm not sure how I feel about everything yet, Marissa. I just finished it this morning, so I also kind of rushed it. I haven't let it process fully, but I feel like I still have so... I have some big problems. <laughs> I have so many questions about characters and their motivations still. I do too. If we were going to go the short story route, I feel like we need a short story about Ren. Yeah, I was hoping to find out his background a little bit. and th- Yeah, we just don't. And then he did kind of... Like, I mean, I like that he supported okami but it like wasn't enough like i didn't like care about him enough still like i felt bad because okami felt bad not because ren died sort of (laughs) right and yoshi i wanted to know about more of yoshi's backstory Mm -hmm. and we also i mean we learn more about the magic and how the mistress kaneko like received her you know she she's the fox and she serves the demon of the wood but But we we saw we still saw just like two or three scenes of her whole life and they weren't even full scenes it was just like a couple of facts and i'm very curious how she met the emperor what she thought of him betraying his friends right you know when they really were in love or when they weren't because she did say that he really loved her and she really loved him but then it also kind of felt like that wasn't entirely the you know like what how their relationship progressed and then even some of her manipulation of her son beforehand. Because I almost, I don't know. I just have a lot of questions. And Roku, I'm still so confused by how he was such a bad seed. I know. I wasn't, he, that seemed like very sudden too. Like I guess maybe we just didn't know him before. But all of a sudden he was like really, really, really bad news. And I just, I wanted a reason for it. Even if it was one particular thing from his past or something. But I, especially because I didn't. The Empress wasn't necessarily a good person, but I felt like she was more, like, lacked depth than, you know, like, was kind of shallow and grew up Mm -hmm. in this world. I didn't think she was super malicious or anything that would have passed on to her son. If anything, I felt like the mistress was more a mischievous type of... I don't... Like, it was just... Yeah, I agree. It was weird. I sort of didn't get why he was so bad and why he was so distrustful of everyone and how... What his motivations were. 
Yeah, and I, and also like when you were talking about the Miss Kaneko, the mistress, I was wondering like what the cost of her magic was because they always talk about like oh magic, this magic comes at a price, but like w- we never really learn what the price is. I mean, I guess she died. Yeah, but that was like she chose to end her life. Yeah, you know, she chose to turn into that spider and like poison herself. And then even that, I was a little bit confused because did she do that for her son so that he wouldn't have to deal, like, because she'd achieved her goal and she didn't want those people to keep causing trouble? Did she do that for herself because she couldn't do anything else? Like, I sort of didn't even understand her motivation for that entirely. And then I felt like Kenshin never got answers for... Amaya. Like, we never really addressed what happened to him. Right. When he, I mean, like, we know that it was the bad magic, but did he ever figure out it was her doing it or... I don't like it just I felt like there were a lot of sort of open-ended there was a lot of really exciting cool stuff and when I was reading it I was really into it and liked it and then at the end I was like wait 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 what about this what about that what yeah I got concerned when I had 50 pages left and none of my questions had been answered that's when I was like "Ooh, this might not end well I feel like yeah there were two chapters left and like everyone was alive and imprisoned and in separate places and all this stuff and I was like what's going on and like I still have questions about Yumi did she ever we sort of know we have a new emperor and we have a new shogun and Ranmaru and Mariko are engaged at least now but everyone else I sort of feel like we don't really know what happened to them like what happened to the black clan my biggest problem is that Sudioki never gets any kind of closure. That was like the last thing I wrote in my notes. I was like, what about Sudioki? And I underlined it like five times. Because he admitted that he loved Okami and had had this unrequited love his entire life. And then it just ends and like, too bad, so sad. That's not fair. <laughs> I just, I didn't think that was fair. And even going back, we know that they had a close friendship, one-sided love, mm-hmm. their family betrayal and like loyalty stuff. Like we know some of that, but he also like everything that he did and went through, sure, it could have all been love for Okami, but it still felt like he had a bigger mission than like, I, yeah, I just, yeah, what? I don't know. Was it all driven by love? Yeah. Yeah. And I sort of wanted to know more about their background. And we we got just like little sneak peek in the Yumi short story of their mother, who I kind of forgot was still around somewhere. This is again one of right. those, where are the parents book? I guess we had the mistress, the mother of... Yeah, those were the two big parent figures. Yeah, but Mariko's parents couldn't make it to their daughter's royal wedding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we've seen that happen this year. <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but that was, yeah, I don't know. It was just, I just had a lot of questions about stuff. If, if her parents, if their whole reason for wanting to marry off their daughter was to like help their name and stuff, you'd think that they would have come to court. I feel like they don't care at that point. It's like, it's done. You know, like they just want her to be married to raise their social standing. It's not like. Yeah, but how do you raise your social standing if you don't come to court? I mean, like, don't you still have to like, that's how people have to respect you or whatever. But like, how do you like if you just stay? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. I just I felt like, yeah, there were some things that I didn't get enough of. Did you get the feeling that Yumi and Kenshin might get together? I did in before randomly back from the dead or I don't even know how what's her name Amaya uh, yeah how she we don't even know anything about that like in between world either like did people really die or did they not die and you know how she just kind of wanders down from the tree and she's fine yeah and like they still have a lot to talk about because <laughs> even if she's still alive, it's not like, oh, okay, then it's fine that I let you go into the burning building and didn't yeah, help you. Remember and that time you left me to die? And also, I lost my mind like five times and murdered a bunch of people. You don't mind, do you? I have no idea what happened or why. And maybe it's fixed or maybe. I don't know. There's just, yeah, there are a lot of questions. I feel like we did finally get some clarification about like the zombie people and the plague that was happening and why Kanako did that. And it really made me hate her so much. Yeah. Because she totally just like stole everyone's mind and, and mind controlled them just to give her son the chance to prove himself and to like make the empire realize that he was the ruler they really needed. Yeah. Like talk about a mom like out of control, wanting the best for their kids, but to the extreme that she is killing entire populations just to give him a chance to shine. Like, that was so disturbing. And it was so many steps removed. Like, I almost wish she would have just killed Roku or something. Like, I mean, like, as bad as it was. Like, it was just, she had all these things that, like, had to line up to make it even happen. Yeah. 
Oh, and then when she mind-controlled Kenshin to try and assassinate Roku and during the wedding ceremony, the first one, when um, Mariko marries Raiden, mm-hmm. and then she, like, plants that innocent kid as the scapegoat. Ugh, that poor kid. And Roku, like, tortures him. I was just... That really made me hate her because she just... It proves that she just does whatever she wants for her own gain and she doesn't care what happens to anyone else. And like, he was like an innocent kid. And she kind of made it sound like that was her whole life goal was to make her son emperor from the beginning. Get a new dream, lady. And I would have even respected her more because Roku shouldn't have been emperor, we learned. But I mean, like, shouldn't have been like he was a bad person, not shouldn't have been by blood or anything. But like, it wasn't like she was concerned about the country and trying to save them from him. She just like was taking advantage of his weaknesses and problems and stuff. He was almost, Roku to me became like insane. Like, he was a psychopath by the end. Yeah, but I was really curious. Like, I was really kind of not excited is the wrong word, but I wanted to know what was motivating him because I can't imagine someone being that driven to madness for no reason. I know. Well, I guess you don't really need a reason, but what I'm more concerned about is why did Raiden not notice that sooner? It's not like all of a sudden he he had these psychopathic tendencies. Like, I'm sure he was like that before. And even, you know, his dad, I think it was, had observed in the first book, you know, my two sons, or maybe it was Kenshin when he was visiting or something, but someone was talking about how, you know, one is a fighter and one is a thinker, but you didn't get the sense that he was like a psychopath. Delicious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I did like that Mariko kind of stood up to Raiden because there was that one point where He's insisting that he's not responsible for Oki's actions. And she basically tells him, you can't stay passive and let him act like a monster. And she was like, if you allow a monster to destroy everything in its path, then you are no better than the monster. Yeah. Which I think is a good thing to say. She was like, you need to take some responsibility, I mean, and try to stop him. I think Raiden was actually one of my favorite characters and I almost wish we had seen even more of his growth and transformation because I think he, even when they were talking about, he was like, well, I don't want to be emperor. And she was like, good, that's the quality we need in an emperor or whatever. He really was trying to, I think he was one of the most honorable people actually in this whole story when you get down to it. But then also it took him so long to become that person. Right, because at first you hate him. Yeah, because he just seems brutal. Because he's like, doesn't want Mariko, because she thinks that she, you know, was somehow quote-unquote tarnished by her time in the Black Clan, and that, that really made me dislike him. But then he does grow on you. And then even with Okami, like, before we knew how crazy Roku was, he was one who was like, oh, it's not all about hurting people, whereas Raiden was one who just wanted to, like, beat him up Mm -hmm. and kill him quickly. And so I didn't like him at first then either. But then he doesn't want to hurt people just to hurt people either. And I love how we see him subtly trying to defy Roku at the palace. Mm -hmm. To protect people. Yeah, like he starts stepping up and he kills that boy who Roku's torturing and tries to end his life quickly to be merciful, but he does it in a way that his brother won't know. And like a lot of the book was him trying to act like he was still on his brother's side while subtly working against him and trying to help people. Yeah, like multiple times he basically sent people away. To protect them. Saying things that sounded like he was agreeing with his brother, but really to get them away from his brother's wrath. Which I I liked that, but at the same time, I was like, I was worried because at first I was like, there's no way Roku is not picking up on this. I know, he's so smart. And again, I just had more questions about their friendship before this point. We saw one story about how they were really truly friends when they were like really young and whatnot. But were these things happening? But because he was an emperor, it wasn't that big of a deal Mm -hmm. yet. Were the clues there or what changed or I don't like I just had a lot of questions still even about their relationship and what it had been up until this point. Yeah. Honestly, I think that Mariko really changed Raiden because he, you know, at first doesn't really know what to make of her. He doesn't trust her. But then he begins to really admire her because throughout her entire time at court, she's really rising above all the cruelty that she sees and Mm -hmm. She has a a way of meeting out justice without malice, like when she asks for Okami to be killed quietly instead of, you know, making a big thing of it. And I think that adding that perspective to his life, I think really turned him around because all of a sudden he had something to compare against Roku and he was like, oh, this is actually a much better way to behave. Like I think having her there is what really made him grow so much. 
I don't disagree entirely. And I actually, that's where his mom was the most interesting to me too, because I really think she wanted him to be like a good, better person and mm-hmm. also kind of help to instill some of that. Like, even though we know she was doing magic stuff on the side, but not reacting to people who were mean to her at court or talking about her behind her back, you know, just kind of rising yeah. above a lot of that stuff. And I think Marco and his mom's relationship was also kind of interesting to me because part of me is like, she's the bad guy, but she's also Marco's ally. But yeah, I don't trust her. But I yeah. just sort of feel weird about who won and how. <laughs> well, also, it's, it's a question about can you ally yourself with people you don't trust? And with people who are working for your same cause, but also working for another cause that maybe you don't support. Yeah, short term, you have the same goal, but long term, yeah. you don't. Mm-hmm. Like, Marika would never have supported Kaneko taking over those people's minds. No. And obviously, she wouldn't have supported her authorizing the attack on her entourage. But they are aligned in the same goal that they do not want Roku on the throne. And so it's like an interesting question of how do you pick your allies and how do you work with them when you're not completely aligned in terms of your goals or how you even try to accomplish them. Yeah. And speaking of allies and trust and all of this stuff, Kinshin and Mariko's final scene together or lack thereof also bothered me because they had that kind of critical moment where he hit her after Mm -hmm. they were trying to share some truth and then she completely turned her back on him when he did really need her help and then we never really saw any peace come from that and I was kind of hoping to see them come back together because not only are they siblings but they're twins and it does seem like they had a really close relationship before and that they both care about each other even though they had all these secrets which I get are complicated and hard to get over but I think we got a glimpse of that or a glimpse of there being peace between them in the future because we do have that scene where Mariko is talking to Yumi and I actually love this scene because they're both bonding over their brothers for a little bit Mm -hmm. because Yumi is really angry at Sunioki because he never let her join the Black Clan and she feels like he underestimates her. And tries to control her, yeah. Yeah, and Mariko's obviously very angry at Kenshin. And Yumi says something about how you don't have to forgive people, but you should try to understand their suffering. And I think they're both united in that because both of their brothers do suffer a lot. Sunioki because of his unrequited love and Kenshin because, you know, he had this moment where he was mind controlled and he unintentionally killed all those people. And because of Amaya. And he really is trying to be honorable and honor the code yeah. that he, you know, but... I mean, I agree. And I thought that was a really good scene. And I actually wanted to see her react to that revelation more. I mean, I think it'll take time. Like, I'm not, I'm actually not surprised we didn't see that in this book, because that's like a hard thing to come up against. You know, someone you're super angry at trying to understand their suffering and forgive them. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I'm not surprised that we didn't see her like work through all those emotions in this book. But I feel like it hinted that that she would eventually. not Because it was just 30 pages or something at that point. So obviously that would have been too fast. But that goes back to the, I sort of felt like the story shouldn't have ended as quickly as it did or something. Maybe we did need a third book. And I don't know if we had enough for a third book. Like that's where I'm kind of like torn. Yeah. Or I almost wish we had fewer characters, but I also like that there were so many characters. You know, just because that was part of the problem for me is we didn't get resolution for everyone and we didn't get enough backstory for everyone. But we still like jumped in all these different perspectives a lot, which made me feel more connected to them. And I wanted to see that. Agreed. Or even, yeah, I don't know. But I did, I really liked it. I really enjoyed reading it. And I liked being in this new world. And I'm actually very interested in reading future stories based in other parts of our world that I'd know less about. Oh, yeah, for sure. What do you think about the magic at the end of the day? I know that was a... I still didn't like it. There was never a part of me that warmed up to it. I just felt like it could have been a really great book without the magic. And I felt like adding the magic introduced a level of complexity that just kind of weakened the story instead of making it stronger. You know, Mm -hmm. like it could have been a really cool story about like feudal Japan and the intrigues at court and the samurai and her infiltrating this clan. Even like some of the stuff that we use magic for, but like just having more manipulation of people, you know, like Kenshin didn't even remember being in the forest and talking to the wolf and his old samurai friend and whatnot. But if instead the mistress had somehow manipulated him a different way, you know, just like manipulation. purely manipulated him without the magic I think it could have like I feel like the magic made it made the story too easy in a way like some of the problems were just 
solved by magic and and it was still confusing how the magic worked and it was confusing like when um okami couldn't shift or couldn't heal himself because like the moonlight wasn't touching him and then they had to move him into the moonlight and even then he was too weak and also supposedly they made all these deals with these different demons in the forest and stuff so like can okami still not have children is this like something where we're going to address oh yeah forgot about that because mariko talked about telling her child about how she was empress for a week or whatever so is she gonna have children or can she not have children because okami can't have children or how, like how does all that work yeah and also the sword the magic sword that also like brightened that never came back brightened when she was looking at it that one time i thought that was gonna have mean something or yeah do something. i thought she was gonna be the one of like noble or pure blood or whatever to be able to wield the sword and that never happened and what about his mom like that scene at his mom's house i like parts of it but the fact that there was some potential that his mom had also made a deal with a demon a sea creature and hadn't, oh, like right. i still feel like there were a lot of questions there too okami's mother yeah sorry okami's mom yep right 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 because he finds that note right he finds a bunch of stuff which is also i was trying to like follow he found like a scale like a magic scale and a fish scale <laughs> He found a poem that his dad wrote to his mom. He found both of their shields and a knife or something. Wasn't that like the four things he found? It was, yeah. I know he finds, I like the letter that he finds by his father that says, fight not for greatness, but for goodness. I do I too. That. that was, that was a good message. I actually felt like that was sort of when we start to hear that he hadn't really forgiven his dad either, that he thought his dad was kind of trying to make himself, you know, like didn't realize what his dad was fighting for. But I felt like we didn't even know that in the first book and a half, that he like was struggling with not just what happened to his dad, but what his dad did to bring about his... Well, yeah, because I think he has this moment where... Well, I I think it's because at first a lot of people maybe viewed his dad as a hero. Mm -hmm. And he comes to the conclusion, he says something like, He didn't really believe in heroes because he felt that heroes cared more about how the world perceived them than they did about those they left behind. So, like, in his mind, heroes, like his father, were more concerned about honor Mm -hmm. than, you know, his son. The fact that he ended his life and left his son alone. Yep. And I really like that whole idea. I just felt like it was introduced really late. Yes. Because I didn't get that impression until kind of we were at his mom's old estate. That he had all this kind of mixed feelings about his dad. Because before that, I thought he was just mad and wanted revenge. Well, yes. But I think we also get that idea whenever he's tr- he's allowing Mariko to basically operate however she wants without thought of himself, too. Like, he's always been caring more for other people than himself the entire time, I think. Yeah, that's true. I just, yeah. Like, he allows himself to be captured rather than have his men suffer. You know, like, he does things like that that are kind of true to that sentiment. Yeah, I agree. I just didn't, I feel like the time, I don't know. I still felt some level of, I didn't know how angry you were with your dad Mm -hmm. before this. Before you, like, reconciled it in your mind with him. I felt like you introduced it as a problem and then resolved it in the same scene. Even though it made <laughs> sense, like, what, like to your point, like, I understood where his perspective came from, but I just hadn't seen him kind of struggling with that when it came to his own dad before. But mm-hmm. I feel like I always uh, criticize all the things I don't like about a book when I actually did really enjoy this book. What was your favorite scene? Um, You know, I... One of the things I really liked about it was all the talk about the different clothes and the different food. So while that mm. wouldn't be my favorite scene to read, I thought that was one of, I mean, to see on screen, I thought that was some of my favorite scenes to read were kind of about just descriptions of food or descriptions of clothing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Probably my favorite scene to see would have been, I don't know, part of me thinks something with the like zombie people would have just been... That's what I'm imagining them as. <laughs> That's what I've been writing them as. Yeah, the zombie, zombie people. people. <laughs> I don't know. Or just something with Mariko being really clever. Like, I feel like there's a lot of scenes where stuff's... Ha- I, like, I, I actually don't know what I'd want to see most. I think I'd want to see the marriage. The first one to write in where um, she wears her hair unbound, like, in defiance. And they're drinking the sake and then they're interrupted and then like all hell breaks loose when all these arrows start flying i think that would have been kind of a cool scene to see or to see um yumi and mariko like going through the city dressed as boys climbing mm-hmm. on the roofs and whatnot i think that would have been cool too so actually speaking of marriages though some of my research was about japanese wedding traditions oh 
Oh, okay. So going back to this, how I thought like the clothes and stuff were interesting. I actually looked up that I'm gonna kill this pronunciation. I'm sure, but the <laughs> Junihito, which was the kimono that she wore for the wedding. Oh, okay. And it literally it translates to twelve layer robe. Wow. It was really common in the 10th century, and it it would weigh, it said 20 kilograms. I don't know how to convert kilograms to pounds, but you know how she was talking about how she couldn't even <laughs> lift her arm to drink for herself because the robe was oh, so heavy? Oh, yeah. It's 44 pounds. 44 pounds. That's crazy. Shoot. No way. That's how heavy the garment was? I, I wouldn't be able to walk. So again, and it's not just one garment. It's like 12 different garments. And you should look up some pictures because they're actually really, really beautiful. But it would be all these different layers of silk in different colors. And you would mostly see it at the neckline or the sleeves, like all the different colors. I think I think in the book, maybe they re- reference it, something about a rainbow or something like that. Oh, wow. But... Like some of the colors have names like Crimson Plum of the Spring. Oh, that's so beautiful. So they're just, it just like seems like such an elegant, like, I don't know, it's just kind of a really cool thing. And I guess depending on what layer and colors you used, it would indicate things about your ranking and stuff like that. Oh. And they also, they would usually bring a fan with them, which was used as a communication device because women weren't allowed to speak to men face to face. So they would either hold up one of their really long sleeves or use their fan to shield themselves. And like send secret messages? I don't, I didn't read enough about secret messages, but more to <laughs> prevent them from being like communicating poorly, you know, being oh caught in something. Hmm. And I read that sometimes they would actually sleep in these 12 layer robes, even though they were so hot and heavy. So I thought that was also kind of interesting. No, thank you. <laughs> Here, Here's the different layers. So you have, so the bottom layer is a white silk undergarment, and then you have an ankle or lower calf length red or white silk robe. Mm. Then you have a long red or maroon pleated split skirt, then an unlined silk robe, and then a series of layered colored unlined robes. And these all have names that I can't pronounce, so I'm not even trying to pronounce them, but... Think how hot you'd be. Yeah. And we're only halfway through. Then you have a scarlet (laughs) silk robe, and then a shorter silk robe, and then a small cloak kind of thing. And then there was a waist-length Chinese-style jacket, and then an apron-like train worn at the back. Wow. But you should look at some of these pictures because I just like can't imagine. I bet they're imagine. beautiful. They're beautiful, but they're also like, yeah, you wouldn't be able to move very well or do much of anything. Maybe that's purposely done <laughs> I know. so the doesn't run away. I, I was, and, but what I read, and I, it didn't say it was specifically a wedding thing. It did say, you know, it was popular in the 10th century, especially for women of prominence, but it didn't mm. say it was a specific wedding garment, but I do think it was considered one of your nicest outfits or, you know, like. Special occasion dress. Yeah. So I yeah. think. <clears throat> You're not wearing that to go grocery shopping (laughs) exactly and then i also read a little bit about so shinto is an ancient japanese religion and it's still pretty common in the culture today so even though a lot of people don't necessarily identify with the beliefs of the shinto religion they still say 79 percent of japanese people belong to a temple oh okay a lot of their traditions are still part of wedding ceremonies today do they drink sake? Yeah, so there is a sake cere- or piece of the ceremony. But this is also interesting. So Shinto is a belief that originated in the worship of demons and involved Ooh. from like a cultural di- tradition of different like superstitious rituals and icons and stuff. But while demons are considered a negative thing in Western culture, in the Shinto culture, they're more, they're supernatural human animal hybrids who can bring good or bad fortune. So they weren't all like negative. They weren't all bad. Yeah. Yeah. So most of the Shinto wedding traditions are ways to bring about good fortune. Hmm. I think the wedding colors are white and red. So a lot of Japanese brides will still do kind of like in the Western tradition, more of a white dress, but with a lot of red accents throughout the ceremony is what I read somewhere. But so the sake sharing ceremony is called Sansan Kudu. And it's, it's common in both Shinto and Buddhist Japanese weddings. And during the ritual, the bride and groom take three sips of sake from three stacked cups. So after they sip, then each set of parents will also sip the sake. So the ritual is a total of nine different sips. And the first three represent the three couples. So the bride and groom, the bride's parents, and the groom's parents. And the second three are supposed to represent the three human flaws, which are hatred, passion, and ignorance. Passion is a flaw. Interesting. Okay. I mean, I guess I could see that like if you have two, you know, like excess of passion or reacting only out of passion or, you know, I mean, yeah, that's true. I didn't read enough about why, but and say, you know, ignorance and hatred to extremes, especially can be bad. (laughs) But some people also believe that they could represent love, wisdom and happiness, not flaws, but just that those are what the three sips mean. 
or heaven, earth, and mankind. But nine is supposed to be a lucky number. So that's why part of why you do the nine. So I read the second three sips represent hatred, passion, and ignorance. And then the last three sips represent freedom from the three flaws. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's a lot of sake. (laughs) I might be staggering back down that aisle in my 40-pound dress. Yeah, I don't know how much a sip is, though. That's true. It's not like it was nine glasses of sake. <laughs> like in a Catholic ceremony, you have a sip of wine, right? You're not going to even nine sips. So well, I guess so. Catholic wine wouldn't usually do much to, to you, probably. But. <laughs> so that's kind of, that's my research. It was just about some different wedding things, but that's that fun. was interesting. I agree. That was kind of a cool scene and just a different, kind of a different tone for the book too. Yeah. I mean, I totally saw it coming, though, when they had the sake interrupted the ceremony, because that was when they were like, essentially exchanging their vows. And so at the end, when they were like, technically, since the wedding ceremony was interrupted, they're not even married. I was like, ugh, yeah, I saw that coming. And they didn't spend the night together and stuff. So I agree. Right. And it was kind of a cop out. Like it would have been more interesting in some ways if the marriage had stuck and they had to deal with that part. But yeah, I mean, not that we want that to happen, but I agree. Well, and it was also interesting because as much, I sort of felt like, and she said it too, it was her choice at that point. So even though it wasn't the man she wanted to marry, she was not being forced to marry this guy either. And I don't, like I thought it was kind of, I had mixed feelings about everything. She does choose to marry him, which is, it is different. And she wants things out of the marriage too. You know, I yes. mean, she was trying to be close to the seat of power. Different than at the beginning of the book when she just was being told to do by her parents and had no choice in the matter. And I like when she, at the end, proposes to Okami. <laughs> Instead of him <laughs> proposing to her, she's like, yeah. basically, I like that does too. the proposal herself. And I was actually trying to think, because so we don't have our fan name yet. Oh, I know. I- we completely <laughs> failed. We failed to think of a fan name. We just couldn't do it. We'll have to do it now, on the spot. But I was like, oh, I remember that she did that proposal. We should pull a name out of that. But what was the proposal again? I think it was something really negative. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was like, will you take this fallen woman? <laughs> But I thought it was still cute. She was basically like, you know, you're all these bad things. You've like betrayed the empire and you've stolen stuff and you're an outlaw. And I've, you know. Should we be the fallen women? Been rejected by the court and have no chance of being accepted back in. I'm a fallen woman. Like, will you marry me? I also liked when she made him promise to let her do things her way, even if it causes him worry or fear. I did too. I really liked that because she was basically like, I'm going to do things the way I want to do them and it will make you worry and it'll make you fearful, but you can't, you can't not let me do this. Like you don't get to tell me what I can and can't do. Yeah. And I really like that even though it was still a love story in a sense and they did end up together, it wasn't ever purely about that. She didn't need a man. It wasn't like my end goal is to be with this guy. That was a nice perk, but that wasn't right. her own only motivation in life or anything. Oh yeah. She was like, will you swear never to interfere when I experiment with strange chemicals at all hours <laughs> of the night? <laughs> I should have included some of these in my vows. I know. Well, I still have time. I need to add them in for James and I. You should add, will you swear never to interfere when I stay up all night reading? <laughs> He's already accepted that he can't do anything about that. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, should we think of a fan, a fan name? Yeah, I mean, we should. Okay. I thought of one right now. <laughs> okay. I, I just opened up this book again and I was going through it. I don't really like it, but we could be Ronin. Oh, like the... Which are like yeah. the samurai, the wandering samurai without masters. I actually kind of really like that. What, did you have a better one? No, I was like something with the black clan. I never have a good one. I don't know why we pretend like I'm going to come up with one all of a sudden. <laughs> Sometimes you do. That's not fair. <laughs> you came up with Wishmakers for Daughter of Smoke and Bone. Oh, yeah. Remember? Yeah. And I was like, oh, I forget what mine was, but it was really bad. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't have a, I didn't have a good one. I do like that. I like that concept a lot, too. I forgot about that. Because I, yeah. I do, it's a lot about independence, too, and... And we don't, we realize that we really didn't want to be samurai, so if we're wrong, in we can kind of be samurai on our terms yeah with no master to bow down to mm-hmm. but you're right i almost wish that we had something like with girl power or like i know and that's kind of like as much as i loved yumi and mariko and their friendship and their growth and i think they both stood for really great things i don't i can't think of a word that unites them or you know that represents those two characters and actually right. it still is a very male heavy cast even with those two really strong females agreed yeah i mean because the empress doesn't really play that much of a role it's really kind of go yeah yeah she's a good bad guy 
Well, I was, okay, speaking of, all right, we can be Ronan for now. Okay. Um, speaking of Kaneko, my research was inspired by her a little bit because Ooh. I was, like, determined to find a case in history where, like, the royal secession was challenged by an illegitimate royal. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find one. <laughs> but, then, <laughs> but I was researching um, royal illegitimate children, like Raiden, uh-huh. and I learned a little bit about them in history. So apparently i didn't know this but the name the last name fitzroy means son of a king but it was used by various illegitimate royal offspring Hmm. so if you ever heard someone in the past whose last name was fitzroy they were essentially a royal bastard i don't like that word but we'll say illegitimate child and their coats of arms in medieval england were marked with a band but normally the band on a coat of arm would be the band's dexter which slopes to the right but in this case, it would be a band sinister, so it would be a diagonal line pointing towards the left. So would it be a good thing to, like, I mean, because some illegitimate children would have been claimed by the king and some wouldn't mm-hmm. have, right? So would yep. it be better to some be claimed? Some of them were recognized. I think so, yeah. Because then if you're claimed, like, you'll probably be given royal holdings. Um, you'd have a marriage that would be arranged that would be beneficial. Because basically the king is saying, you are my flesh and blood, so unless yep. you want to go against the king, you're not going to, like, right. do too much against this kid. Okay. Then I started thinking about Kaneko and how she was essentially a royal mistress. And then I went down a whole wormhole about concubines. <laughs> well, it's funny because right before we started recording, I was like, I'm getting nervous that we would have researched the same thing again, especially because I know how you get really into royal weddings. Yeah. <laughs> but you were like, there's no way you, you went down the same <laughs> rabbit hole I did this time. <laughs> oh my goodness. I learned so much about concubines. <laughs> Words you probably didn't think you were going to say anytime soon never never okay so i tried to find some information about concubines in japan and there is some stuff but the most the most interesting stuff was about concubines in china Hmm. so real quick here's what i learned about concubines in japan so i guess there were concubines that were chosen to you know be a source of pleasure for the emperor or the or the shogun but also to provide him an opportunity to have more children and to have more heirs So that was kind of interesting. And I guess to be a concubine in Japan could be a very highly coveted honor. And and many concubines were formally recognized in a ceremony much like marriage. Well, and that was also interesting when we were reading, because Yumi, there was a lot of reference to her eventually having to choose a benefactor, which is another open-ended question I have. Did she get out of that arrangement? Did she pick one? I hope she gets out of it. But, I mean, it it did kind of seem, maybe not quite the same way, but, you know, there was sort of like a legitimacy to the mistress role or whatever. Yeah, because I guess oftentimes it was very possible for the son of an imperial concubine to become emperor, Hmm. which is different from a lot of other cultures. So then I went through concubines in China. This is kind of interesting. So in pre-modern China, it was illegal for a man to have more than one wife at a time, but but the loophole was that they were allowed to have concubines. (laughs) At first, a man could have as many concubines as he could afford, but then later they started putting like a limit on that. What do they mean can't afford? Did you have to buy them or just be able to support them? I think support them. Okay. The higher ranking the man, the more concubines he would have. And it was like a... Status symbol. An image of, yeah, of social Mm -hmm. standing. This is kind of crazy. So I was just reading about how many concubines some of these emperors owned. So one of the, the more famous places, the Forbidden City, obviously, and many imperial concubines were kept in the Forbidden City. So at one point, there was a Ming emperor that had 200, no, 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 that would be crazy, 20,000 women living in the Forbidden City. Wait, 200 would have been crazy, but 20,000 is not? I I almost said 200,000. Oh, (laughs) well, you said 200. I I was about to agree that would be crazy. And then you said 20,000. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So I guess the concubines were guarded by eunuchs because they wanted to ensure that the bloodline was pure. So if they had a child, they wanted to ensure that it was the emperor's child. Hmm. And so they would guard them with eunuchs. And at one point, there were 20,000 women and 100,000 eunuchs living in the Forbidden City. Wow. I wonder if that, because like, if you only have to spend one out of 20,000 nights with your whatever the the equivalent is, yeah, emperor, what do you do with the rest of your time? Is it like actually like living in a sorority house? Somewhat? Like, is it like a nice life without, or is it not good? (laughs) 
Well, that's what I was thinking because I was like, that actually kind of made me feel better because I was like, okay, well, if there's 20,000 of us, the chances of me being picked to have to go sleep with this guy are pretty low. Mm -hmm. And so I I felt a little bit better because I was like, in my mind, that would be a horrific situation to have to go into this city and then like go into the bed of this king. But I, yeah. I guess if you were a concubine, if you had a child of the emperor, that was like a highly coveted position because especially if it was a boy, that son could become emperor and you mm-hmm. could raise your social standing by a lot. There are examples of concubines who became empress. Wow. And so I guess... So you did want to get picked, kind of. Yeah, there were... I'm sure, I'm sure not everyone did, but... Yeah. At times, I guess there were women in the harem who would form alliances with the eunuchs and they would compete with each other for the emperor's attention. And then, you know, if she was picked to go to be with the emperor, she then would would, uh, reward the eunuch who supported her and would place him in a position of authority. So there was like some real power struggles going on within this court. It's like a really intense version of The Bachelor. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Yeah, that's one way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's such a weird, you wouldn't wish that on anyone, but also for a lot of these people, it actually would have been a good thing in some ways, just because of what the other options would have been. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. You're always going to be inferior to the, to the emperor's wife. But everyone already is, so. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) I mean, I'm just saying. (laughs) I mean, at the same time, there were some, I mean, I would say the majority of, I would say the downsides of being a concubine would be worse than the upsides. Yeah. For sure. In ancient times, sometimes concubines were buried alive with the emperor to keep him company in the afterlife. That is so creepy. Isn't that terrible? Oh my goodness. And a lot of the concubines were young girls who were kidnapped from their homes. That's terrible too. And then they were like forbidden to leave the prison, the forbidden city. Yeah, it was a prison. Yeah. No, I'm not trying to say it was good in any way. I'm just... This was kind of insane too. So there was an emperor who was obsessed with finding an elixir to provide him with eternal life. And he believed that the key ingredient in this elixir was the menstrual blood of virgins. And so he like rounded up thousands of young women to put in his palace and he fed them a diet of mulberries and rainwater to keep them quote unquote pure. And a lot of the girls died from starvation and oh that's all he gave them yeah Ugh, i thought that was no. just like a special thing he gave them nope. nope that was their diet and then because of this maltreatment there was an uprising and this was kind of interesting it was called the renyan plot and it was also known as the palace women's uprising and it was in the ming dynasty against this one emperor and there were 16 concubines who attempted to murder him in 1542 good for them i know oh, what happened with them? it doesn't have a happy ending uh, i kind of knew that was coming but... i know Okay, so they took action on a night when he was in the chambers of his favorite concubine, Consort Duan was her name. And after the concubine left, these palace women went into the room and one tried to strangle the emperor with a ribbon from her hair. And then when that didn't work, they tied a silk curtain cord around his neck, but they weren't able to like tighten the noose enough to kill him. And then one of the women like totally panicked and got cold feet and she reported the assassination to the empress. Mm. And the emperor, I guess, was unconscious because of the attack. And so the empress took matters into her own hands and she had all the women executed in a really horrific way that I won't talk about. Even the one who told her? Yeah. So that lady just brought about not only the death of these people who she shouldn't have betrayed, but her own as well. What was interesting, though, was the emperor really resented the empress for doing this because in the process, she killed his favorite consort, this um, consort, the woman whose name is Duan. And he later pardoned her and because she, I guess, didn't have a part in the uprising. And then in 1547, a fire broke out in the palace and the emperor refused to have the empress rescued and she burned to death. Oh my goodness. Isn't that insane? So there could have been other, again, these female politics going on too. Yeah, totally. If he was out and she wanted to get rid of the favorite also. Interesting. But in a creepy, bad way. It's, It's so creepy. We can end on a high note. So I guess there are examples of concubines who achieve a lot of power and influence in history. So the Empress Dowager Cixi, 
Sixi. It's probably not pronounced that wrong, but she <laughs> was one of the most successful concubines in history. She entered court as a concubine, gave birth to the emperor's son, who ended up being his only surviving son. And she wow. became kind of like, what do you call, like the queen regent mm-hmm. of, and like the ruler of China for 47 years after her husband died. Wow. Yeah. So that made me feel a little bit better. After her not husband though, right? Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> after the emperor After then. the emperor died. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I, I mean. I mean, it, I mean, even just watching like Rain, which is a completely different, but I mean, it's interesting to think about all the politics that go on in any kind of royal family, yeah. especially when you have extramarital relations and, you know, just the different ways people will try and gain power and, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. When I read that, I was like, this is something out of Rain. This is yeah. unbelievable. But I mean, it makes sense, but it's also crazy and I can't imagine. I mean, that was one of the things I liked about the second book too, because we went from the forest. It was a completely new kind of environment. We're in the imperial city. There's more of this political intrigue going on. I mean, there were a lot of things I liked about the series and that was part of it, I think. I know. I wish it had just been that though, because if it had just been about like these betrayals and like the three friends at the beginning, like the emperor and Okami and Remaru's fathers, Mm -hmm. like I wish we had just focused on that and like their betrayal and the court intrigue. It could have been a great series if we didn't have the magic in my opinion i kind of like that's a short story i would really like would be to go back to when all the the emperor and the dads were younger and maybe even the mistress is there getting her powers and seducing the emperor or whatever like i I think that could have been a really interesting piece of the story to flush out more too agreed well do we want to do a rating for this series yes we do how many mm, everything i'm thinking of is how many layers of kimono robes (laughs) how many kimonos do you want to (laughs) get out of 12 yeah out of 12 i'm gonna give it eight i I was gonna give it eight or nine ah okay well we're tied yep i gave it four stars on goodreads so i think i gave it three but i'm very stingy with my stars i gave the short stories less than that but this the book itself i did for, I think. I wish they had half stars on Goodreads, truly. I know, me too. Sometimes it's not enough, but it also forces you to make a decision. I know I can add comments anyways, but I never actually do that, and I always wish I could just add stuff, and I'm like, but you can, Katie, so like, <laughs> you just do it instead of talking about how you wish you could. Anyways, I'm anyway. weird. But I really, I'm very curious. I think I would read more by Renee Adia. I like this world that she opened up to me, and I liked her female characters especially a lot, mm-hmm. and... And I liked the world build. I like I like how she um, set her book in a world we hadn't seen before, feudal Japan. Yeah, and I kind of want to. Did you say you did read one of her? Yeah, other I read books? the Wrath and the Dawn. It was just the first one, and that's the one that's kind of Arabian Nights yep. retelling or something. I'm kind of intrigued by that. Exactly. It was good. I think I... I'm open to her in the future. The second book wasn't wasn't out when I read it, so that's why I didn't finish the series. But I would go back and finish it. Well, speaking of series, do we want to talk about the next series we're going to read? Oh, yeah, because we're done. That's so fast. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) And I actually, I know we had picked a book, but I haven't even looked it up or anything. So hopefully you can tell me something about it now. I will. Um, We're going to take a week off to get over our book hangover. And then we are going to start Red Queen by Victoria Aveyard. I'm excited. And we are going to read up to chapter 17 in the first book, Red Queen. This series is a quadrology which is not the technical term, but that's the term Katie and I came up with. That's our favorite term. It's really a tetralogy, but that's boring. So we we came up with quadrology before we knew the right term. Before we knew better. Before we knew better. Yeah, it's going to be a quadrology. So we're going to be in this world for a while. Good. I feel like we've done a few duologies. I need to really sink my teeth into something for a while. Yeah. And you know what? I believe the final book in this series is recently released. So maybe this will be the one time we finally get to go on a book tour and meet the author. Yes, I would love to. I know. I took this weird quiz today. I don't remember why I did this, but it was like, what kind of book reader are you? And I answered all these questions and it said I was a fan girl slash boy. I mean, because I didn't know if I was a girl or boy. But mm-hmm. it was like, you must know exactly what chapter all your favorite authors and all this. And it basically, said, I was like, if I went on book tours, <laughs> I would. this would apply to me more. <laughs> So the last book in the series, Warstorm, came out May 15th of this year. Ooh, I hope we didn't miss the book tour. (laughs) We'll have to look it up. Yeah. Okay, well, I will read the back of the book so we know what we're getting into. Okay, I'm excited. Okay. Mare Barrow's world is divided by blood, those with red and those with silver. 
Mare and her family are lowly reds, destined to serve the silver elite whose supernatural abilities make them nearly gods. Are you having red rising flashbacks already? I know, <laughs> me too. That's exactly the first thing I thought of. Mare steals what she can to help her family survive, but a twist of fate leads her to the royal palace itself, where, in front of the king and all his nobles, she discovers an ability she didn't know she had. Except her blood is red. To hide this impossibility, the king forces her into the role of a lost silver princess and betroths her to one of his, one of his own sons. As Mare is drawn further into the silver world, her actions put into motion a deadly and violent dance, pitting prince against prince and Mare against her own heart. From debut author Victoria Aviard comes a lush, vivid fantasy series where loyalty and desire can tear you apart and the only certainty is betrayal. This sounds like rain. <laughs> I, yeah, I think we're going to like this. this sounds exactly I, like rain. We're going to love it. I have a it. feeling we're going to love this. <laughs> Ooh, okay. So I already have a lot of questions. Yep. We're going to read up to chapter 17. Okay. Which is roughly 200 pages. Sounds good. I wonder if they're all roughly the same length book or not. Remember how we were reading, what was our first quadrology? <laughs> Lunar Star, Chronicles? Our, yeah, the Lunar Chronicles. And all of a sudden we were at like <laughs> a billion pages. Yes. 700 pages. <laughs> <laughs> that was a little rough. <laughs> but we did it. Yes, we did. Okay. Okay. And it's my turn to tell you a joke this week. Yes. Make me laugh. Okay. So. <laughs> no, make me laugh. I'm just oh, Okay. <laughs> All right. Here's a joke that's appropriate for summer right now. The doctor told me to get into a bathtub full of milk to soothe my sunburn. I asked him, pasteurized? No, just up to your neck, he said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's silly. Oh, boy. All right. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, we would love it. We are on Instagram and Facebook, MNKTalkYA, or at gmail.com is our email. <laughs> that was not very <laughs> elegant. <laughs> if you can figure that out and email us, we'll be really impressed. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Time to say goodbye to this series and start Red Queen. Sounds good. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.